Bible, you can turn to Luke 12. If you wonder why my voice is deeper, I've been praying that it would be deeper for a long time. (laughs) So, this is one of the few Sundays I get to preach and not sound like Mickey Mouse. Uh, Turn to Luke chapter 12. John Fox, in his classic work, Fox's Book of Martyrs, tells of one of the darkest chapters in the history of Christianity, the Spanish Inquisitions. The Spanish Inquisitions were begun in 1232 over the entire realm of Pope Gregory IX a court of Dominican and Franciscan friars were appointed in each city to oversee the trial, accusations, and executions of those uh, who were either blatantly heretics or who were even accused of being heretics. These, uh, the Inquisition was given uh, unlimited powers by the Pope to excommunicate, torture, and sentence to death anyone who opposed Roman Catholic dogma or teaching even in the smallest uh, degree. Gregory created the Inquisitions because there were rumors circulating in his realm that he was going to deny Christianity, step down from being the pulp, and become a Muslim. This angered him, and so he created the Inquisition to show the world that he was not only pro-Roman Catholic, but he was deathly against all Protestants, all Jews, and all Muslims. The Inquisitors themselves appointed others to collect money received from fines, to confiscate property, and to conduct tortures. Physicians were appointed to oversee the tortures so that those who were damaged by the tortures could be healed up and tortured again before being burned at the stake. People were executed for disagreeing with the doctrines of the church, for suspicions of things like sorcery, blasphemy, sexual sin, um, denying that uh, in communion the the bread and wine literally become the body and blood of Christ, for reading the Talmud or Koran or even reading the Bible as a layperson. Greed began to take over, and soon the inquisitors would falsely accuse, try, and burn at the stake anyone who had holdings that they wanted. Huge quantities of land were seized. All they needed to do is find out who owned the land, accuse them of something, burn them at the stake, and the church would take over. People were stretched on racks, burned with live coals. Pieces of red-hot metal were used to sear their bodies. Their fingers and toes were broken and their feet and hands crushed. Their teeth were pulled out. Um, Tender pieces of flesh were squeezed with large pinchers. Uh, Hooks were inserted in the flesh and pulled out. Pins were inserted under the fingernails and toenails. Ropes were tightened around their limbs until they cut through to the bone. Some were scourged with whips, beaten with rods, pummeled with fists and clubs, etc., an attempt to coerce them into admitting they were heretics. Fox says, quote, the methods used by the sadistic inquisitors are too numerous and horrendous to list, end quote. And regardless of how they were tortured in the end, they were almost always burned at the stake. Officially, the Roman Catholic Church was not allowed to execute anybody, so at the very end, they handed them over to the public officials to burn them. 
Fox writes, quote, By this public display, the Roman clergy hoped that fear of the Inquisition would be burned into the minds and hearts of those watching the flames consume heretics who opposed the papal church. But those who had true faith in Christ were actually strengthened in their faith as they saw the courage of martyrs and the grace of God that sustained them through their tortures and in the flames. Of all the offenses of the Inquisition throughout the world, the Inquisition in Spain was the most active and sadistic and is an example of the terrible danger of giving unlimited power over the bodies and lives of people to unholy men who claim to be holy, end quote. If you have never read Fox's Book of Martyrs, you need to. It kind of puts an end to all complaining. Uh, starting at very with the apostles and moving all the way through the history of the church uh, up into the Reformation, John Fox um, noted with great detail using the best sources available, eyewitness accounts of people who had died for their faith. More recently, Harold Chadwick has taken Fox's Book of Martyrs and added to it, calling it the new Fox's Book of Martyrs, rewritten it in modern English, and has uh, recorded the persecution of Christians even up into the present day. Now, you read of things like this, and you may say to yourself, well, I am glad we're not living in the Dark Ages anymore in those medieval times when people were so barbaric and people were killed and executed for the faith. Obviously, uh, we live in modern times and civil times because you cringe at the barbarity and cruelty and unspeakable atrocities committed by, quote, Christians against, quote, Christians. But hear me when I say this, because I'm sure it may shock some of you, that more... Christians have died for the faith in the last hundred years than in the previous 19 centuries combined. Atrocities and sadistic tortures equal to, if not surpassing those committed during the Spanish Inquisition are happening today, now, in 2008. If you want to read about some, of course, the news doesn't want to report them. You can go to persecution.com, maybe subscribe to Voice of the Martyrs newsletter, and it will give you detailed accounts of those who are today being tortured and martyred for the cause of Christ. Now, why am I telling you all this? Because you need to know this simple but important truth that all Christians who love the Lord... All Christians who stand up for the truth, all Christians who proclaim the gospel in a God-hating world will be persecuted. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So the question is, is do you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus? Well, if you're a Christian, you do. And so what can you expect? Persecution. The world doesn't like it when Christians stand up for the truth, proclaim the truth, share the gospel, speak out against sin. And sometimes they are persecuted, ironically, from religious leaders, men of God who really are men of the world. Look at our text, Luke chapter 12, and follow along as I read verses 4 through 9. 
I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that, have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two cents? Yet not one of them is forgotten before God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. And I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the son of man will confess him before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Now, from this text, I want to point out to you four God-given incentives for not fearing men who persecute you because of your faith in Jesus Christ. So that when persecution does come for your faith, and it comes to all of us in one degree or another, you will be a strong witness for Christ and not fear men. So the first thing we learn from the text is this. Don't be afraid to die at the hands of men. Look at verse 4. Jesus says, I say to you, my friends. Now stop there. What does Jesus mean by this term, my friends? Well, it's really a synonym for disciple. His friends were those who believed in him and followed him and learned from him. In other words, they were disciples. Here Jesus is speaking to the group that has assembled. We know that there was a very large crowd, according to chapter 12, verse 1. So many thousands of people now have gathered together and come to Jesus that they are stepping on one another. Lots of people, thousands, maybe 10,000, maybe 15,000, lots. Jesus has been doing miracles. He's been having a confrontation with the religious leaders and people are showing up to see the miracles, to see the confrontation, to hear what Jesus had to say, to see if the religious leaders can overthrow him, outwit him or whatever. We read in various places in the gospel, though, that just because somebody claims to be a disciple or is a follower of Jesus, that doesn't mean they're a true believer. All true believers are disciples, but not all who claim to be disciples are true believers. As an example, turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. I'll just show you one example of this. Jesus has just told a large group of his disciples they must eat his flesh and drink his blood. This did not go over very well. They didn't understand what he meant. I thought, are you talking about cannibalism here? You know, what are you talking about? Look at verse 60. Of John 6, therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can, understand, who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? So he makes this hard statement, and you would think he would say, well, is this causing you to stumble? I'm really sorry that it's causing you to stumble. As a matter of fact, what I'm going to do is tell you something nice and easy. No, then he says, I want you to know, you're going to see the Son of Man ascend into heaven. Then you think, well, that's hard to take too. Then he says, look at verse 64, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Judas was, of course, one of them who did not believe and betrayed Jesus. But notice he says, Jesus knew from the beginning who they were. 
Speaking of many of these disciples, look down at verse 66. As a result of this, Jesus' hard statements, Jesus saying, eat my flesh and drink my blood, Jesus saying, I'm going to send into heaven, and Jesus is saying, some of you don't even believe in me, though you pretend to be my disciples. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So, just because there were a large group of people following Jesus around claiming to be Jesus' disciples doesn't mean they were all believers. Why is this important? Because pretty soon as we move through the text, we will discover that Jesus uses hell as an incentive as he speaks to these disciples. And some of you may be thinking, well, why would he do that? If believers don't go to hell, why would he use hell as an incentive with this group of disciples. But that's for later. Remember, though, that we learn that Jesus, after getting into this dialogue with the religious leaders, this public uh, word battle, was then invited surreptitiously, kind of by the... um, the a Pharisee who was really intent at ambushing Jesus. He then invited many other Pharisees and lawyers or scribes to lunch. And there they kind of uh, subtly at first and then uh, very openly went toe to toe with Jesus. Jesus then um, exposed their hypocrisy, insulted them repeatedly to their face, and then he leaves the house. We read in verse 53 of chapter 11 that they then chased after him. So get this in your mind. Jesus leaves the house and the Pharisees are are behind him barking, asking questions, trying to get Jesus to respond in a way so that they can catch Jesus in something he might say. They're after him. Jesus is fed up with them and has some righteous indignation at their hypocrisy because they're not only leading the people away from believing him. But in doing that, they're leading the people to hell. Away from their salvation, away from Jesus as the Messiah. So Jesus then approaches his disciples who um, apparently are sitting outside the house or near. And they're kind of clustered together, a little closer to Jesus. They're the first people Jesus comes to. And Jesus addresses them. But behind them is this crowd of thousands Packed tight, wanting to get close to listen and see what Jesus is going to do. And Jesus then walking up to his disciples in earshot of the angry, scowling, snarling religious leaders behind him says to his disciples and the hearing of the crowd and the hearing of the religious leaders, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And I'm sure he probably turned around and pointed when he said it. So that all the crowd knows that Jesus is single-handedly going against the established religious leaders who are well respected by the disciples and by the whole crowd. So you got to get that in your mind. Because Jesus now... Is going to say some scary words that I'm sure are going to shock his disciples. 
Jesus has just offended them privately, but now he's offending the religious leaders in public before the disciples and this huge crowd. Now think with me. You got to think with me on this one. Let's just say you were one of Jesus' disciples. You're sitting on the ground there. You're in a group of 100, 200. You see Jesus coming out of the house. You hear the religious leaders barking questions at him. Jesus is it's ignoring him. He walks up and says to you and all the other disciples, beware of the hypocrisy of those men. And all the crowd's watching. The crowd behind you has been taught to respect the religious leaders too, but Jesus is not respecting them. He is insulting them repeatedly, calling them hypocrites headed for hell. Now here's the question. What are you thinking as you're sitting there on the ground? What's going through your mind? What emotions are rising up within you? Fear. Fear. You fear for yourself. You fear for Jesus. You're one of Jesus' disciples. You've obviously sided with Jesus in public. Jesus is now hammering, exposing Calling the religious leaders who are the most powerful, most respected, most godly, influential members of the Jewish community. You have sided with Jesus. They hate Jesus and they hate you because you like Jesus. The crowd who has been following the religious leaders, they now are looking at you from behind. And the religious leaders are looking at you from the front behind Jesus. They know you're on Jesus' side. You fear being ostracized from the Jewish community of being condemned along with Jesus as a heretic. You're scared of what might happen to you and your family and your business. Where are you going to live if you can't live among the Jews? And you're probably just thinking inside, oh, Jesus, couldn't you just be a little less abrasive? Couldn't you just, you know, tone it down? I mean, what's that verse? Blessed are the peacemakers. I mean, did you tell us that? I mean, come on, you know, you're getting us in trouble. Look at verse four. So Jesus walks up to the disciples and says, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that, have no more that they can do. Jesus knows what his disciples are thinking and feeling. So he immediately addresses the fear of man. Which we learned last week just happens to be one of the leading emotions that leads to what? Spiritual hypocrisy. The Greek word for fear is phobeo, the word we get phobia from. Fear, to fear something. And it's usually translated in a couple different ways. One way is to be um, like reverence, the reverence of God, fear the Lord, which is more speaking of kind of a holy reverence. And then there is to be afraid or terrified, which is how it should be translated in this text here. His disciples are terrified. And Jesus knows they're terrified. He can see it on their faces. They're wincing and worried and looking behind them and looking behind Jesus. As Jesus is speaking to them, they're probably getting glimpses of the religious leaders who are looking past Jesus at their faces. And you know what? Fear comes easy, doesn't it? 
I mean, we're all just kind of naturally fearful of other people. You know, we're, we're feared, f- afraid of the, what they might do to us, of the bully at school, of the older person, the more powerful person, the popular person, the person who has higher rank. And sometimes that fear of other people and what they might do or what they might think or how they might respond tempts us to deny Christ, to deny the truth, to not stand up for what is right, to pretend to be an unbeliever, though we are saved, to be a religious hypocrite. We might not share our faith with somebody because of fear, or we might not say, well, that is wrong because of fear, or we might not even just say, I am a Christian because of fear. And in typical Jesus fashion, Jesus goes to the worst case scenario. I like this about Jesus. He doesn't say, well, let's say somebody gets angry at you. Man, he red lines. He says, okay, I know you, 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 I'm looking, you're all scared. All right, let's just redline it. Don't be afraid of those who kill you. I mean, that's about the worst thing they could do, right? Kill you. So Jesus just goes ahead and he just addresses the worst possible thing they could do. And the word kill here, there's usually, there's a couple different words used in the Greek for kill. One is just usually translated to kill. This is an intensive form of the word, which means to kill or slaughter by any means imaginable. Which would include slow, slow torture unto death. Don't be afraid of those who might kill you by any means imaginable. Don't fear them. Now, if you believe in the theory of evolution, then this life is all there is for you. You live by accident, you die by accident, and then you're gone for eternity. Your consciousness ceases when you die. You return from the dust in which you accidentally sprang there's no morals there's no right there's no wrong no god no heaven no hell and this is what the world wishes to be true with their little wish wand but it is a lie there is a god there is a heaven there is a hell and there is a coming judgment People, after they die, physically have spirits that continue to live on for all eternity in one of two distinct places, either in heaven or hell. There will be a resurrection of bodies of both believers and unbelievers. The unbelievers will be resurrected and given a body fit for eternal destruction, and believers will be resurrected and given a body fit for eternal glory. And those who know God know these things to be true. And this is why the psalmist could say what he did in Psalm 18, verses 5 through 9, when he writes, From my distress I called upon the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I will look with satisfaction on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. See, the psalmist understood what all Christians should understand, that death 
is not the end. Death is the beginning of eternity. I like to picture it this way. If you could think of a line that started at a point here and went on forever in one direction. Your life in this world, if you live to be 70, 80, 90, 100 years old, is like a very fine pencil mark at the very beginning. And then there's eternity. And what the world is saying is, is that little pencil mark is all there is. And then nothing. The Bible says, your life's a vapor. And then eternity. Totally opposite, which you would expect from Satan. And the Christian, to have confidence in death, is normal. The Christian sees death as a blessing, as a door that leads from this sin-cursed world, releases them from sin and their sin-cursed body into the very presence of Christ. And who is scared about that? Who, who is worried about that? Death is the ticket that allows us to stand before our Savior, to see him blameless with great joy, not only him, but all the angels and all the saints of all the ages. And that is a great thing. All Christians long to see Jesus. Do you remember what Paul said in Philippians chapter 1 verses 21 through 24? He said this, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose, but I am hard pressed from both directions, having a desire to depart and be with Christ for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Paul says, listen, I know I just want to go be with Jesus. I just want to get out of this sin cursed body and this sin cursed world and stand before Jesus and begin to worship him in perfection in heaven. That is very much better. But I realize God may have things for me to do here now, and that's fine too. But believe me, if I have to choose, heaven is what I choose. And the only way you get to heaven is to what? Die. To die. It's interesting when, you know, I've talked to different Christians about this, that some of them are pretty scared of death. And and that always marvels me. I mean, nobody likes to hurt and suffer, but... Why would you be scared of dying? You know, you go to the doctor and the doctor says, I, I, I have news for you. It's like, what's that doctor? Um, you're terminally ill. Well, let me just ask you right now. How many people you here think they're going to die someday? Raise your hand. <laughs> We're all terminal. We're all Terminal. This life is terminal. It's appointed for men to die once, and after that comes the judgment. We're terminal. You don't need the doctor to tell you that. I'm telling you. I'm not a medical doctor. You're terminal. You will die. Okay. So, when the doctor says that, you just say, yeah, I know. You did? Is this your second opinion? No, God told me. There's a point for men to die once, and after that comes the judgment. And you know what, doctor? You're terminal too. 
What are you going to do when you die? In 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, Paul, probably one of the most persecuted Christians who has ever lived. I mean, if you ever read that list in 2 Corinthians 11 about the trials he went through, how he was shipwrecked and stoned and beaten and received the 39 lashes and, you know, was starved and out in the cold and floating around in the ocean all night. I mean, he just lists this huge list of all these trials that he's gone through. Here's how Paul describes them. For momentary light affliction (laughs) is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. The things that you suffer in this world, the trials you might go through, the persecutions for Christ you might go through, they're temporary. But heaven is eternal. You've got to get that perspective. The world keeps telling you this little mark of a life is all there is. The vapor is all there is. But God says, no, it's just a vapor. It's just a small dash. It's a blip on the screen. Eternity, live for eternity. Thomas Watson rightly pointed out saying that the righteous will receive all the pain, misery, and trial they will ever receive in this life only. And the wicked will receive all the pleasure they will ever receive In this life only. That is the proper perspective. That is why Paul goes on to say in 2 Corinthians 5 verses 6 through 8. Therefore being always of good courage. And knowing that while we are at home in the body we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith not by sight. We are of good courage I say. And prefer rather to be absent from the body. And to be at home with the Lord. He prefers this. That is the Christian perspective, to prefer to be with the Lord. In the last chapter of the last book Paul ever wrote, shortly before being martyred himself for the faith, Paul said in 2 Timothy 4, 6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Paul just saw his life as a drink offering, a liquid offering, just poured out, and he was just shaking out the last few drops. In service to God. And he said, my time for my departure has come. Going to see Jesus. I mean, he's excited about it. He's anticipating it. He longs for it. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Verse 18. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. I just want to read this to you just to remind you of what is true, which you just don't hear from the world. Romans eight eighteen. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Do you actually think whatever you might suffer for Christ in this life is actually going to suppress eternity of glory in heaven? 
Not even close. Verse 19, for the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption and to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And just stop there. Do you see what Paul's saying here? He's saying this. He's saying, you know what? Any Christian who loves Christ longs to be set free from their sin-cursed body and the sin-cursed world. Because in the past, God cursed the world when sin entered. And all of those people ever since then have been sinners. And we've been sinners. And we are sinners. And we sin. And other people sin. And the whole creation is groaning. It's agonizing. Notice what he says in verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes what he already sees? Do you know Christ? Do you love the Lord? Are you looking forward to heaven? Are the things to come more precious to you than anything this world has to offer? Are you tired of sinning, of living in a sin-cursed world among sin-cursed people? Does the thought of standing before Jesus perfect without sin, clothed in his righteousness, make you ache inside for glory? That is normal. That's normal. But you have to die first. You know, unless the rapture happens, which is fine. Some, one generation gets to be raptured, and it could be ours. But would you rather slowly pine away in a hospital bed of some terrible debilitating diseases with a bunch of hoses and tubes plugged into you, or die for the faith? I mean, to me, it's a no-brainer. I'd rather die standing up for Jesus than die in the hospital bed. And everyone Jesus is speaking to in our text believes in the afterlife. There's no evolutionists present. Jesus understands that his followers are tempted to fear men. So he goes to the worst case scenario. Do not fear those who even by any imaginable means possible kill your body. Because after that, what else can they do? You know, so they kill you. Then they go, okay, we're really going to get him now. Let's chop him up. Does that hurt? Well, let's throw him in the fire. Does that hurt? Spread out his ashes. Does that hurt? No. I mean, once you're dead, it's over, man. Man's ability to harm ends at death. That is the last link of authority God has given him. It's the end of his chain. He can't go any farther than that. John Wycliffe, who died in 1384, is to be credited as the man whose English translation of the Bible was really the first decisive spark that lit the match of the Reformation. Wycliffe was a brilliant Roman Catholic scholar, loved the word of God, and in his study of the scriptures came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And as his understanding of the scriptures grew... His understanding of all of the mystical practices of the Roman Catholic Church grew. 
And so he decided he was going to try and help the Roman Catholic Church by getting them back to where they were before all the mysticism had entered through the Dark Ages. Wycliffe had discovered from the study of the word of God that one, the bread and the wine in communion did not literally turn into the body and blood of Christ. Secondly, that the church of Rome is not the head of all churches, nor did Peter have any more power given to him by Christ than any of the other apostles. Third, he learned that the Pope had no more keys to the church than any other priest. Four, that the gospel alone is sufficient to rule the life of every Christian person on earth without any other works of man being added. Five, that any rules made by men to govern the church had added no more perfection to the gospel of Jesus Christ than whitewash applied to a wall would actually change the color of the wall behind it. And six, neither the Pope nor any other pastor or priest should have prisons to punish transgressors. This is what he discovered. Other things besides this in reading his Bible. Of course, he preached these with such conviction, with such passion from the Bible that the Pope himself said, I am amazed at what authority and conviction and passion he preaches. And as Wycliffe's teaching became known, he offended more and more of the hierarchy of the church, the Pope, and the rest of the Roman Catholic priesthood turned against him. He was one man standing for the truth against the religious establishment. A papal bull was issued, part of which stated that Wycliffe, quote, does not fear to teach and publicly preach, or rather to vomit out of the filthy dungeon of his breast. It's kind of a leading, loaded statement there, huh? Certain erroneous and false propositions and conclusions savoring even of heretical moral corruption and tend to weaken the overthrow of the status of the whole church and even the secular government, end quote. When the truth was... Exactly opposite. Exactly opposite. Isn't that something? Just like Jesus in our text. The exact opposite was true. And imagine the courage it would take to stand up for the truth in those medieval times. Especially because Wycliffe, as many others, had seen many other people be burnt at the stake for many much smaller offenses than Wycliffe had committed in exposing these errors of the Roman Catholic Church. And so eventually Wycliffe came to trial. And when he was brought to trial, something interesting happened. There was a discussion at the beginning of whether he should stand up or sit down when giving his defense. And some thought he should stand and others thought he should sit. And they began to argue and argue and argue. And this went on for a couple hours until it became so heated, a brawl ensued. The meeting was adjourned and it was never reconvened. (laughs) The next time he was brought to trial, a messenger from the king just popped into the room and commanded the bishops not to proceed any further with a definitive sentence against John Wycliffe. 
and they were stunned, speechless. They didn't know what to do since they couldn't pass a sentence. So the meeting was adjourned and Wycliffe was able to go free. A third time Wycliffe was brought to trial was on St. Dunstan's Day in 1382. The Archbishop of Canterbury, his assistants, doctors of divinity, Lawyers and professors assembled at Blackfriars in London to try Wycliffe as a heretic. And just as the specifics of Wycliffe's teachings were being discussed, a strong earthquake shook all of London. Many present thought it was an omen from God that the meeting should be adjourned. The archbishop tried to persuade those present that the earthquake was not an omen from God and proceeded to read the teachings of Wycliffe to all of the religious leaders present. And could condemn him as a heretic. Yet the other leaders, fearing the earthquake, took no decisive action against Wycliffe. And again, he was able to go free. In all three of these instances, Wycliffe's teachings were read in front of all the religious leaders. So they all knew the truth. And then he was able to go free. Sometimes God preserves us. Sometimes he does not. Sometimes it's like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Sometimes you'd get burned at the stake. Another account states that while Wycliffe was being examined in a church, a lightning bolt struck the front door of the church and terrified the people so much they all left and the meeting was adjourned. Again, he was able to go free. But Wycliffe, like Jesus in our text, single-handedly stood against the religious leaders of his day. He did not fear to proclaim the truth. He did not fear to be brought to trial. He knew that many before him for smaller offenses were burned at the stake, but he didn't fear for his life. Why? Because he knew what Jesus said in our text. Do not fear those who kill the body. For after that, what else can they do? That's why he was so courageous. You know, and we all fear men at time. You know, you have that opportunity to speak and, you know, maybe just somebody just like, you know, gives you that opportunity on a silver platter. You know, you're sitting there with your unbelieving boss at lunch or whatever. And he says, yeah, I just, my life just doesn't seem like it has meaning. And you're just, and inside you're going, I should tell him, I should tell him. But because he's your boss and because he could fire you and because you want his favor and you fear him more than God, you don't say anything. You pretend to be an unbeliever. You, you play the hypocrite. Or maybe it's a coworker, a friend, or relative. And I think most of us have probably never even been close to dying for the faith. I mean, I've had several death threats against me for preaching, but no bullets have been fired yet. Some of you have been ostracized by parents and rejected by friends. You've lost jobs. You've been slandered or mocked or ridiculed or yelled at and the like. I've heard many testimonies of this nature. Some from people getting baptized. These things are mild forms of persecution when compared to being tortured and burned at the stake. But for those of you who have suffered, and of course, all of you who have desired to live godly in Christ Jesus have had some persecution. If you had to do it over again, would you prefer to deny Christ? Of course not. When Wycliffe 
by the hand of God was preserved and preserved and preserved as he kept teaching and they kept proclaiming all of these truths which should have had him burn at the stake a thousand times. He finally died a couple years later in his sleep. But his translation of the Bible caused so much grief to the church. Because as soon as the Bible was put into the common language of the people, they started reading the Bible and then they could understand what the Bible said and that the church was teaching them what the Bible didn't say. And so the Reformation began. The church was so angry at Wycliffe, they dug up his bones, burnt them in fire and threw them into the river. (laughs) 43 years later. Now, do you think that hurt? Think that actually hurt him? No. Jesus says, don't fear men. For after they have killed you, they can't do anything after that. Well, there's a lot more in this text that uh, I could tell you. As a matter of fact, I have about five more pages, which we're just going to leave here for next week if we live that long. But I just want to talk to some of you who look at your life and you have a history of fearing men. You look at your life, let's say last year, you can't remember a single time when you shared the gospel with somebody. I'm not talking to telling somebody that, oh yeah, I go to church. Mormons go to church. Jehovah Witnesses go to church. Cults gather, most of them on Sunday. I'm talking about sitting somebody down and saying, listen, this is who God is. He's a holy God. He must punish sin. And this is who you are before God. You are a sinner. But God is also loving God. And he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life, to die on the cross for sins, to be buried and raised from the dead, so that you through faith in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Do you believe that? If you do believe that, you will be saved. Now, when you think about that last year, How many times have you done that? If you're sitting there and you're thinking, I I can't remember a single time. Then you're denying Christ. You're fearing men. You need to get saved. You need to give your life to Christ. Because Christians are those who fear God. It doesn't mean we do it perfectly. It doesn't mean every Christian will always do what's right. I mean, we all blow it at times. But if the habit of your life is to deny the word of God, to deny your savior, to not speak up for the truth, to not even say, I am a Christian. Then something's wrong. You may come to church and you may Tell us you're Christians, but what are you telling the world, the people who really need to know? Maybe this morning you just need to humble yourself before the Lord and just say, Lord, save me. I place my faith in Christ alone to save me. Give me that courage I need. Give me the faith I need so that I can live for you the way that you have called me to live. So that I don't fear men and play the hypocrite when I'm pretending to be something I'm not. Well, let's pray and then we have a great announcement to give you in a minute. Father, we are grateful for this morning, for your kindness and your grace.
Father, I pray for each of us that we would examine our heart to see whether or not we're fearing men. We will learn as we move through the text that it's a serious problem, the fear of man. It brings a snare. And those who deny you before men, they will be denied after they they die by the Holy God. Father, I pray that if there's somebody here who has never repented of their sins and placed their faith alone in Christ to forgive them, I pray that you would right now save them. For the rest of us, we confess our sins to you, our fear of man, the times when we knew we should have said something and didn't, the times when we should have been good witnesses but weren't, the times when we, for selfish reasons, pretended to be something we were not. May we be strong, bold, loving witnesses for you in the world. Entrust our lives into your hands. For we know that even if they kill us, there's nothing more that they can do. And Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.